What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage. We're going to be talking about Conspiracy Theory 1997, Rockman 1987, The Prowler 1981, Freddy Got 2001, Duel 1971, and Game Boy Micro. Done in about eh, 11 to 12 seconds, I'm sure. Five movies and then the Game Boy Micro. For some reason, I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? Nobody really talked about the Game Boy Micro. And then a Conspiracy Theory, Rocketman, and Freddy Got Fingered, and as well as Duel, four of the five films I have on a VHS. And I was like, you know what? I got to watch these. I was like, I got my... VCR plugged in. Those are all some things that are my collection that I've had since a kid, especially Freddy, Rocketman, and Conspiracy Theory. Duel I just picked up recently. That was a recent pickup. Um, Game Boy Micro. I've never had one. I probably won't get one. I have a Game Boy Advance SP that I picked up at a thrift store a long time ago. It is an AGS uh, 101 model, the one with the backlight on it. <clears throat> you know, I paid like 25 bucks for it. But uh, the Game Boy Micro, those things are... Pfft, 200 500 dollars and up depending on the condition and the color and so forth i mean there, it would be a cool piece to have but i you know i no I, I don't need it just a cool piece of history to talk about more or less how about that and uh, as far as gaming goes uh i've been getting back into playing um sparks of hope the uh, sequel to kingdom battle the mario rabbits game because i beat uh ghostbusters the atari game that was on xbox 360 excuse me i burped yeah i couldn't help myself uh, the Xbox 360 game, Ghostbusters, produced by Atari. Um, a solid, solid game. It is basically the continuation of the uh, first two films that came out. You play as the rookie. I had a lot of fun with it. Ba basically a running gun, kind of like cinematic, I guess, running gun shooter, if you will. Yeah, super, super cool. But I, I highly recommend it. And it's Xbox 360 slash PS3. So it's, you know, $10 or less, probably stupid cheap, but totally worth your guys' time for those of you who like to play goofy, fun games. But uh, there you have it, episode 77. I got five movies and Game Boy Micro coming at you. Let's go. What's going on, guys? I'm going to be talking to you guys about the 1997 film Conspiracy Theory. Rated R, two hours and 15 minutes. I got Mississippi Fred McDowell going. You got to move the full album. Some classic blues, man. Just I haven't listened to this stuff in a while. I was just in the mood. Uh, Conspiracy Theory on IMDb has a 6.7 out of 104,000. You know what? I'm going to turn up Mississippi Fred up a little bit. I don't know how loud it is for you guys, but anyway. Uh, let me see here. Action mystery thriller. A taxi driver with a penchant for conspiracy theories becomes a target after one of those theories turns out to be true. Unfortunately, to save himself, he has to figure out which theory it is. It's a pretty strange kind of character, I think, for uh, Mel Gibson to play. Julie Roberts in the 90s was very much one of these particular characters that she is portraying in this film compared to, insert other film here, Aaron Brockovich, uh, you know, Stepmom or whatever the hell that movie was that she, I mean, she kind of plays a similar character other than I, I love when she plays Tinkerbell in a hook. But anyway, directed by Richard Donner, uh, written by Brian Helgeland. Let me see what else Richard Donner did here. Anything uh, worth noting that I would be like, oh, yeah. Oh, he did the original Superman, 1978. The sequel as well, Lady Hawk and Lethal Weapon. Okay, so he's a very well-known director. Okay. Obviously, Lethal Weapon having Mel Gibson as well. So, okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Back to the matter at hand. What do we got going on here? Mel Gibson, obviously. Julia Roberts. Who else? Oh, Patrick Stewart. That's right. He's one of the main villains as Dr. Jonas. Uh, features Michael Potts as a justice guard. Who else we got here? Nothing else that I really can tell. Uh, the storyline here uh, is that Jerry Fletcher, uh, Mel Gibson's character, is a man with uh, who's in love with a woman, and she doesn't know yet. Julie Roberts' character. He's a taxi driver. He's rather just – he's kind of an irritable, annoying kind of character, just like rattling off anything and everything that comes to his mind uh, to patrons who are in his taxi. Um, 
he's in love with Julie Roberts, who he observes from afar, and she doesn't realize it yet. She works for the government. I believe she's a uh, an attorney, if I'm not uh, mistaken, from what I gather. Uh, Fletcher is an outspoken critic of that particular government. He has conspiracy theories for everything from aliens to political assassinations, but soon one of his theories finds itself to be accurate. Which one? Some dangerous people want him dead, i.e. Patrick Stewart's character, and the only person he trusts is the woman he loves, Julie Roberts. She doesn't love him at first, and towards the end, she loves him. Uh, the tagline is, they knew too much. Sure, w- whatever. More like he knew, you know, and then she evidently ends up knowing too. But rated R, simply just for violence. Uh, let's take a look at the trivia here. <coughs> According to an interview with director Richard Donner on the DVD uh, Payback, a straight-up director's cut, twenty, uh, excuse me, 2006, he met screenwriter Bren, Brian Helgeland, not Bren, kind of fucking name is Bren, whatever, when he was driving at the Warner Brothers gate and saw Brian holding a sign that read, Will write for work for money. Richard got out of the car and asked him to uh, sign up. Brian replied that he was a screenwriter and was looking for work. Donner had decided to give Helgeland a chance, which led to the two of them working on this movie, also working on another Donner film, Assassins, in 1995. That's kind of cool. Uh, according to Richard Donner, Mel Gibson improvised the opening scenes in which his character expounds his conspiracy theories to a succession of passengers. Okay, so that means the first like 10 to 15 minutes of this film where we're getting credits and music and just him rattling off anything and everything is all improvised. That's pretty cool. Okay, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. I always love when things are improvised because I feel like it just – you really experience – what knowledge that particular character has as far as being a method actor, uh, really getting into the tone, the emotions, the physicality, the mentality of just the film overall. Like improvisation can be incredibly difficult to master. And when it's done right, it works. So I'm glad that it worked in this regard. Uh, In the movie, several times an earthquake is referenced that took place on a Southern coast with a magnitude of 7.3 during presidential visit. Visit. A 7.3 earthquake did indeed happen in the northwest part of Turkey in 99, just to be followed by a presidential visit. That's crazy. The movie also makes references to Kennedy's assassination by Lee Harvey Oswald in the film. Jerry evades capture by running from a Barnes & Noble bookstore and seeks sanctuary in a theater. This is the reference to Oswald, who ran from a book depository and hid into a theater after the assassination of uh, JFK in uh, 1963. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Interesting. Uh, let's see what else we can find on... Uh, IMDb's page for Conspiracy Theory. Released August 8th, 1997. uh, Done by Warner Brothers. Filmed in Broadway, downtown LA. And it's pretty obvious. You can, or at least being from the West Coast myself, I can tell. Its budget was $75 million, which is incredible. Grossed worldwide $136,982,834. So, I mean, it clearly made, you know, (coughs) excuse me, over 50... uh, 50 more million dollars so i would say it was a success granted i mean despite it's like what is it six point something uh yeah 6.7 i mean i i round and at least give it a seven it was worth a watch but i've definitely watched better thrillers for sure let's see what wikipedia has to say a 1997 american political action thriller directed by richard donner as i stated written by brian helgeland centers on an eccentric taxi driver and the justice department attorney involved within his life it was a financial financial success but critical reviews were mixed and i can see that because it kind of drags on there's a lot of like weird character development and mel gibson kind of plays like a dustin hoffman version of like rain man but with like a thriller aspect to it i don't know it it's very he's a very strange individual in this film uh here according to wikipedia budget of 80 million and box office 137 million so roughly about the same kind of uh 
information given. All scenes filmed at the horse farm used Lionshare Farm in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, actually, despite uh, IMDb telling me it was filmed in L.A., so I guess they filmed it in both. The facility is owned by the U.S. equestrian team member Peter Leone, who coached Julie Roberts through the scene at the movie's end. It's pretty crazy that they had somebody coach her because she's literally on the horse for only like maybe two minutes of the film. They should have just used a stunt double and probably would have saved them money. <laughs> Excuse me. Where she gallops her horse across the field while Gibson characters, uh, he looks on longingly from a vehicle driving on a nearby road. He is essentially in the back of a car uh, because he was holding up a bunch of people at like gunpoint trying to convey, you know, his innocence. And he essentially, for lack of a better phrase, can't necessarily get close to her. But she ends up finding his uh, taxi driving certification pin, I guess, if you will, on the, uh, the saddle that she has on the horse. So she knows he's around, but obviously she can't see him. Uh, box office conspiracy theory released August 8th, 1997 in 2800 theaters. Uh, it opened up at number one, displacing Air Force One, which I think is a much better film with uh, Harrison Ford, personally. Uh, the final gross made it the 19th grossest film in the U.S. in 1997. Critical response, Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 57% out of 44 critics. Cinema score gave it a B plus on an A to F scale. Um, Roger Ebert observed the film, cries out it to be a small film, a quixotic little indie production, or Quixotic, whatever the hell you, I mean, because it's spelled kind of the same way, whatever the hell you want to pronounce it as, where the Daffy dialogue and weird characters could weave their coils of paranoia into great offbeat humor. Unfortunately, the parts of the movie that are truly good are buried beneath the deadening layers of thriller cliches and an unconvincing love story. Thank you. He pretty much, I, it's always like hit or miss with it. I feel like when I'm watching like better movies, I agree with him, but then when I'm watching like my nostalgic crap that I enjoy watching, I disagree with him. And I think for those of you who enjoy good and bad, Bad films can probably relatively agree with me there. If the movie had stayed at ground level and had been a real story about real people, it might have been a lot better and more funny. He says funnier, but I had to grammatically correct him. It's more funny would be the fucking phrase. Good job, Roger Ebert. Anyway, all of the energy is in the basic material and none of its romance that is grafted on like an unneeded limb or superfluous organ. Okay, agreed, agreed, got it. Rolling Stone, Peter Travers, strong impact that Gibson makes as a damaged goods is diluted by selling Jerry as a cute and redeemable individual. No, not at all. He's kind of annoying. He, he's like portraying like a 13-year-old dork, like as if Toxic Avenger were in this, like I said, meets Range Man or something. It's just, it doesn't work. Anyway, uh, in his 2000 book, A Culture of Conspiracy, political scientist Michael Birkin notes that a vast popular audience has been introduced by the film to the notion that the U.S. government is controlled by a deep state whose secret agents use black helicopters, a view once confined to the radical right. I don't know why I read that last uh, little aspect of it. I just found it interesting. But there you have it, Conspiracy Theory. I watched my VHS copy. I'm glad that I have it. I think it was my parents as a kid. I just never watched it because I was always more of a Lethal Weapon or a Mad Max fan of Mel Gibson. Hell, even the Patriot, dude. Come on. This movie, eh, take it or leave it. Anyway, next thing. Still got Mississippi Fred McDowell going. I'm going to be talking to you guys about Rocket Man, another film from 1997, rated PG, an hour and 35, has a 5.8 out of 10,000. It's basically like The Pest meets uh, Ace Ventura, but in space. And it's Harlan Williams, the guy who goes into jail from Half-Baked, 
Um, he's also in uh, Freddy Got Fingered, which I'm going to be talking to you guys momentarily. Uh, another film that he's also in. This movie was one of my favorites as a kid. It is my VHS copy with the good old Blockbuster sticker on it. I love it. It's hilarious. It's not necessarily as PC as perhaps some things would be today. So some things you have to take, you know, with a grain of salt. It's, what, 26 years old now. It's, it's a solid film. I find it hilarious. Uh, it's a comedy made by Disney, actually. Fred Z. Randall, a.k.a. Harlem Williams' character, is a geeky spacecraft designer who gets the chance to make his dream come true and travel to Mars. Directed by Stuart Gillard, Gillard, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. For all I know, it's French, and it's Gillard. I don't know. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, Gillard, Gillard, whatever, he also directed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, the uh, third installment, which is obviously, I guess, in the original trilogy, probably the least favorite amongst most fans, although I still enjoy it for what it is. That film has a 4.8 and directed four years prior, 1993. Everything else that he did, I don't really necessarily know other than The Outer Limits, which I still haven't watched yet. But there you have it. There's Stuart Gillard. Uh, stars Harlem Williams, Jessica Lundy, and William Sadler. <clears throat> Harlem Williams, as I said, from uh, Half-Baked. William Sadler, he's been in a lot. Let me, uh, you guys will probably get an idea of what he's been in as soon as I uh, take a look at what he's known for here. Uh, he's in The Mist, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That's right. He plays the Grim Reaper. You sunk my battleship. 1991 classic Shawshank Redemption. That's right. He's one of the uh, guys in the prison. And Die Hard 2, he is Stuart. In 1990, oh yeah, he's he's been in a lot. William Sadler, I I recognize his face. I always I just I can never really put a name to that particular face, but now I know. That's right. Bo Bridges is the, uh, I guess he's kind of like Houston, I guess if you will, at NASA. He pretty much takes over, and Bo Bridges doesn't really get nearly as much credit as his father Lloyd and or his brother uh, Jeff Bridges as well. But uh, I like Bo for what it's worth. What else we got here? Uh, the other storyline is Fred Z. Randall, obnoxious spacecraft designer, a geek who gets the chance to make his dream come true and travel to Mars as a member of the first man flight there. Uh, the tagline is he's just taking up space. And that works perfectly because he, he does in his tagline that he says, or I guess his slogan, I guess, if you will, is he always messes up something. And he's like, it wasn't me. And he just points at whoever's next to him. It's so funny. Rated PG for its language, crude humor and thematic elements. I, I guess PG is appropriate. Sure. I mean, he even makes a lot of Disney references throughout the movie. Like he makes fun of like, you know, old yeller and he pretends to sing like Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. I mean, come on. Anyway, trivially, when Randall is singing, he's got the whole world in his cans on the world broadcast, uh, the broadcast. Yep. Well, I do like crash the punk band, but <laughs> fuck, there you have it. I can't speak English. Uh, on the world broadcast, he starts faking singing in foreign languages, which is probably one of the uh, high points of this film because it's just so bizarre and dumb, but it's great. Ironically, he actually says in French, Je suis la papillon sur la table, which translates to I am the butterfly on the table. Je suis being I am, la papillon being butterfly sur la table is uh, on top of the table, essentially. Yes, I speak a little bit of French. I'm a lot more fluent in uh, Spanish than I am in French, but I love French. It's basically just sexy English. Oh, it's just so sexy. Anyway, trivially, back to Rocket Man. For the surface of Mars, the filmmakers shot in Moab, Utah, where they found the giant cliffs, red rocks, a lack of vegetation, and the overall scale of what could be a distant planet. And it shows. I mean, you can tell. And, you know, more power to them. I've, I've gone through Utah, and it definitely looks like that. To prepare for their roles as astronauts, the three stars attended space camp in Huntsville, Alabama, riding in simulators and participating in other activities with uh, space attendants. That's pretty cool. 
The filmmakers spent nine weeks at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, shooting at the famous Rocket Park, the gargantuan Building 9 that houses all of the spacecraft mock-ups for the ongoing shuttle missions, and Building 32, which houses the world's largest thermal vacuum chamber and simulates all conditions of outer space, except for the uh, zero-gravity aspect. Uh, lastly, at one point in the film, the commander tells Randall, have fun. Randall replies with, fun is my Chinese neighbor's middle name. Disney was afraid of that joke that would offend the Chinese viewers. However, many Chinese fans actually found that joke to be funny. And then again, when he also, this is actually a side note, when he's singing, you know, uh, I got the whole world in my hands. He even does like a Chinese version and he just says Chinese. He doesn't say, you know, Mandarin. He doesn't say Cantonese. And he's just like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, surprised that they didn't even get offended about that. But they get offended or they thought Disney would get offended about this. I mean, whatever. Just just saying, just noticing. But to each their own. You know, like I said, this is, it's a different time. This came out in 1997. I'm assuming probably filmed early 97, late 96. And things were different back then. And, you know, hey, if they can laugh at themselves, I mean, that, that's great. You know, more power to them. <sighs> um, crazy credits. After all the credits, we see the ultimate fate of the substitute flag. The substitute flag, that was pretty funny. It was actually uh, his boxers because he loses the flag. He rips out his underwear while he's supposedly on Mars and it's a flag and he hangs it. So funny. Oh, boy. There are alternate versions of this film well, uh, as well. To get the PG rating in the UK, 42 seconds were cut to remove a scene in which a child climbs into a washing machine and goes for a spin within it, which is actually within like the first probably, I don't know, five minutes of the film. So that's crazy that they got rid of, well, I guess the first minute, if you will. Oh, boy. Moving on. Released October 10th, 1997. Also known as Rocket Man, two words rather than just one word. I guess maybe not to be confused with the Rocket Man, uh, Elton John film that came out recently. Filmed in Sugarland, Texas, uh, along with obviously Moab, Utah, which it doesn't say here on the filming locations. Um, its budget was 16 million and it grossed 15.4, so it almost broke even. So I guess that's why it's a flop, considering the score. Let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say. Uh, it is American comic science fiction. I wouldn't even consider it science fiction. It's just goofy. It's it's fun. I enjoyed it. Produced by Walt Disney and Caravan Pictures uh, is a partial remake of a 1967 film, The Reluctant Astronaut. That is news to me. I'm just discovering this right now, and I'm going to have to uh, look into that and perhaps watch it. Film uh, was actually shot on location at Lake Point Plaza in Sugarland, Texas, constructed building for Fluor Corporation. The building exterior was dressed with NASA signage to give the appearance of the shooting at an actual NASA site, so I get it. It was also filmed in Moab, Utah, as I stated, according to Wikipedia. Spent nine weeks at the Johnson Space Center in uh, Houston, Texas, and Building 32. Uh, the three stars attended space camp, as I stated, writing simulators. Filming started on September 16th, 1996. What did I say? Late 96, wrapping up relatively close to my birthday, November 25th, 1996. Box office, Rocket Man. Opening weekend, 4.4 million. The film's second week saw a negative 33% uh, disadvantage in its attendance, dropping to number seven at the box office. By the end of its theatrical run, it only grossed 15.4 million, as I stated, so it was definitely a flop. The home media, one of the first Disney titles released on DVD. Wow, that's so cool. I don't even have a DVD. I got a VHS copy. What's up? Through a different distribution company, not supporting DVD at the time. It then soon went out of print, so for all I know, the DVD could be worth something. I don't know. I didn't look into it. The Disney Movie Club in April 2006 began distributing the DVD for re-release. September, September. What the fuck kind of month is September? Oh yeah, you know, it's right after the day of the week. Blah, 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 day. What the fuck is September? 
<laughs> I'm going to say it again. What the fuck is Feptember? <laughs> Jesus. <sighs> February 27th, 2018, Disney Movie Club began distributing a Blu-ray 20th anniversary. I can't even. I'm still on that. Feptember. I'm, I'm keeping that one. I might as well get that shit tattooed. That's so stupid. Reception on Rotten Tomatoes. The film has a score of 20% based on 20 reviews with a weighted average. Of, I'm still laughing. Oh, I'm not surprised it flopped on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just, it's a Jerry Lee Lewis, Jim Carrey mold, like I said, meets uh, The Pest. You know, Roger Ebert gave it, uh, gave it three positive stars out of four, calling it a wacky comedy, Jerry Lewis, Jim Carrey mold. Basically what I said, just with different uh, actors. So I'm glad that he liked it because I thought it was hilarious too. All right. Well, back to September and moving on to another uh, month slash movie. <laughs> What's going on, guys? I still got uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell going on. I'm going to be talking to you guys about The Prowler. I've seen this before at least once or twice, if not Tubi or other means of uh, watching it. But The Prowler, 1981, rated R, hour and 29, has a 5.9 out of 12,000 for a slasher. And for a slasher, that's actually not a bad score, but it's just it's just a very different kind of slasher. It's really gory in its exploitative kind of grindhouse regard. Uh, Tom Savini claims it to be one of his best uh worked films as far as uh, special effects it's it still holds up i'm glad that i rewatched it it's been a couple of years since i rewatched it and I, I like it i don't think i've talked about it yet so i'm gonna be talking about it now the tagline on the cover art without the little uh what do you want to call it i guess the um soldier in war garb is it's like a black and white house looks like kind of like the psycho house up in a corner and there's like a guy walking up with a pitchfork because at one point in the film the guy does use a pitchfork but tiny little white lettering on it it says it will freeze your blood, and that's pretty cool. Uh, I, like I said, it's a horror mystery thriller. I really enjoyed it, and I probably always will. Really, really cool kills. Uh, an unknown killer clad in World War II garb, army fatigues, stalks a small California town, bent on reliving a 35-year-old double murder by focusing on a group of college kids holding an annual graduation dance. So 35 years prior, this guy essentially killed somebody and they never found anything since. And now he's basically back to, yeah, more or less uh, seek revenge. Directed by Joseph Zito. That name sounds incredibly familiar. What else do we have here? Uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, the fourth one he did. And I really like that one with uh, Corey Feldman personally. And uh, Missing in Action with um, Chuck Norris in uh, 84. So he did two films in uh, 84. He had his work cut out for him. Wow. Okay. All right. What else we got here? <clears throat> Uh, starring Vicky Dawson, Christopher Goutman, and Lawrence Tierney. Those names sound really familiar, too. I feel like I should know who... Lawrence Tierney sounds really familiar. I don't recognize really anybody else. I'm going to scroll down, moving on. What else we got here? The storyline here, uh, what I'm reading, is the film begins with the return home of a World War II veteran, recipient of the dear John Letter, after, after swiftly dispatching a courting couple in a gazebo, right in the beginning, essentially, we leap to present day where a college celebration becomes the hunting ground for a uniform-clad killer. In the beginning sequence with the uh, gazebo, he uh, cuts out the lights. It's pretty cool, you know, and then he goes in and just murks them. I love it. So the tagline here is, you don't need a chainsaw to have a massacre. It's uh, re-released uh, three years later in 84, known as the Pitchfork Massacre. He doesn't strictly just use a pitchfork. He also has what it looks like is a uh, bayonetta. Not necessarily the rifle, but just the uh, knife on the end. You know, it's like a solid, what, foot, foot and a half uh, knife. Pretty cool. Um, trivially, let me take a look here. The cemetery scenes were shot at an actual cemetery on Halloween night, 1980. The open grave used in the film was an actual open grave awaiting a funeral. That's pretty spooky. 
Tom Savini, as I stated, considers this to be his best work. And you can pretty much almost attest to that. It, it really shows that he really, you know, outdid himself in this one. Granted, yes, Dawn of the Dead is great. Obviously, Friday the 13th, even his Night of the Living Dead remake, or not, yeah, Night of the Living Dead remake that he did. I mean, he's done a lot, of course. In 2014, it was discovered that The Prowler had been re-released to a handful of theaters in North and South Carolina as Pitchfork Massacre in the spring of 84. It is still unknown who the distributor was or whether they had legally acquired the rights to do so within the naming uh, or the remake of the names. That's a trip. <clears throat> the film was the reason that director Joseph Zito was later selected to direct Friday the 13th, the final chapter, uh, which came out. I think each uh, year of new Friday the 13th came out being 80, obviously the original and part two, part three, 3d, and then four uh, final chapters. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, Farley Granger was cast in the film because of one of the film's investors happened to be taking an acting class with him. <laughs> pretty interesting. All right, let's get back to what do we got here on uh, IMDb? Uh, ooh, crazy credits. The color of the closing credits turns from blood red to yellow. That's a trip. I don't think I got that far into it. Anyway, what do we got here? Anything else? Anything else? Released November 10th, 1981 in the UK, also known as Most Likely to Die. Interesting. Filmed in Cape May, New Jersey. Production company graduation. Its budget was only a million dollars. I don't have anything as far as a gross. Let's read what uh, Wikipedia has to say. American slasher film directed by Joseph Zito. I already told you guys that. Filmed in late 1980 in Cape May, New Jersey, it was independently distributed by Sandhurst Releasing Corporation. Not a major commercial success, ranking 135 overall that year in the U.S. box office, grossing less than one million. So it didn't even fucking break even. That's kind of sad because it's, I'd say it's really well known now as far as a cult uh, slasher film, but it's, it's still really good whether you know you've heard of it or not. It needed to be talked about, so that's why I'm doing it. The film was released under the alternate title Rosemary's Killer, so it has so many different titles in a version that truncated many of its graphic murdering sequences. It received mixed reviews from critics, developed a cult following in the years after its release with praise aimed at the hard-edged violence showcasing special effects coordinator Tom Savini, of course. As well as his atmosphere, it has been named one of the greatest slasher films of all time by several publications, including Complex and Paste Magazine, which... I, I'm not saying it's my favorite, but it, it's definitely up there. I, I can totally attest to their uh, agreeance uh, or concur with that uh, regard. It is noted as a classic of the slasher film subgenre. It has also been compared by a number of critics to another slasher film of the same year with a similar plot, My Bloody Valentine, which, yeah, that's also an equally great film just as well. And that one also has a really cool twist at the end too. Super, super cool. Thematically... Uh, it is a sly, strange statement about the stakes of war. Uh, think of it, I guess, as a slasher version of like, you know, rant or uh, what is it? Uh, First Blood, per se. You know, Dusner cites that the film is it's transgressive in the genre due to its portrayal of the war veteran as its villain. Yes, similar to how I just stated uh, First Blood is. You know, he comes home and people think he's crazy and he ends up becoming crazy. You know, not every movie could get away with casting a spurned veteran as its villain, especially not after a World War II veteran comes home and does that. Even in 1981, that generation was lionized for the austere morality of that conflict, set in a sharp relief by the more controversial Vietnam War, which was, uh, what, 20 years after the fact. Uh, scholar James Kendrick notes that the Prowler is thematically linked to such slasher films as The Burning, 1981, which released the same year. I love that film as well, also featuring Jason Alexander, a.k.a. George Costanza from The Seinfeld, in which psychological trauma plays an integral role in the acts of murder committed. 
where a present event provokes, or excuse me, provides the traumatized, maddened villain and an opportunity to take revenge on the guilty parties of their symbolic substitutes. Well said. Well, well. Uh, oh, I'm actually looking here that the uh, Emlyn Physic Estate served as a filming location. That looks pretty cool. It looks like old, like Victorian type home. I'll look into that here momentarily. Co-written by Glenn Leopold and Joseph Barbera, as well as Neil Barbera. Drawn to its misty quality, it had the strange dreamlike mood in it. It wasn't trying to be real. It was just trying to be surreal in its own particular way. So, so cool. Uh, filmed in Avalon, California, where it was uh, set, but later decided to shoot in the film in uh, Cape May, New Jersey, where it had that ghost town quality. Shot over in a period of six weeks, which consisted of six days of work beginning in October 1980, contemporary newspaper reports cite a budget of 400000 to 500000 where Joseph Zito has stated that the film ultimately cost him $1 million to produce. During production, the film had the working title, Graduation. Well, there was also another horror film in the later years, uh, and maybe a couple years after the fact, uh, called Graduation Day, which is also a really cool slasher to watch as well. The Inn at Cape May served as the building that appears in the dance sequences, uh, it is the Chatham House where the film's last act takes place. The dormitory sequences were filmed inside the Chalfant Hotel. Tom Savini designed the special effects, as I stated, because the film's death sequences were so specially, effectively, and intensive, the shooting schedule was crafted to prioritize the filming of them specifically, with whole days dedicated to one particular death sequence. That's insane. That's, that's a lot. Box office, uh... Avco Embassy Pictures previously released the slasher prominent in 1980, expressing interest in distributing The Prowler. The film was ultimately distributed independently in the U.S. by Sandhurst, opened regionally in Louisville, Kentucky, Dayton, Ohio, on June 26th of 81, followed by release in Kansas City, Missouri, September 4th, 81, premiered L.A. October 9th, 81, overall it ranked 135th at the U.S. box office that year, 1981, earning less than its uh, purported $1 million uh, budget at the time. Censorship released under the alternate title Rosemary's Killer in Australia and Europe, and it cut the exercises of a lot of uh, Tom Savini's gourd effects out in order to uh, be released in those particular theaters. Uh, the version, the excuse me, the German version goes by the title Die Forke des Tode, the Pitchfork of Death. Excuse my German, I'm sure it's terrible. Uh, the Encyclopedia of Horror 1986 reports that Savini's particularly graphic special effects resulted in most of the murders being trimmed in the British release print. Basically, something that I just reiterated to you guys. Uh, home Media, Blue Underground released the fully uncut version in 2002 on DVD, Blu-ray in 2010. The extras include a trailer, a still poster gallery, behind-the-scenes gore footage from Tom Savini, and audio commentary with Joseph Zito and Tom Savini, which I would love to hear what they have to say. In January 2019, Waxwork Records released the film's original score on vinyl and as a double LP. Legacy-wise, it has been cited as a classic of the slasher subgenre in the golden age of the 80s and has acquired a cult following. Of course it did. 2017, Complex Magazine named it the 24th best slasher of all time. I would probably personally put it higher, at least maybe even like top 10. It's so good. Following Your Pace included it in the list of their 50 best slasher movies of all time where the film's killer was ranked the 11th greatest slasher villain of all time by LA Weekly. Well-deserved. There you have it, The Prowler. Watch it any which way you can, 1981. Solid, solid film by Joseph Zito, director of Fr uh, not Fr yeah, Friday the 13th, Final Chapter Part 4, and Tom Savini's, even he stated it as his best work as far as gore. So get out there and watch this one. Next film. What's going on? I got the... Uh, 
last end of a Mississippi Fred McDowell going, and I'm going to be talking to you guys about Freddy Got Finger 2001 Rated R, hour and 27 minutes. I watched my original VHS copy. It has a 4.6 out of 50,000 reviews, and rightly so. I mean, it's it's a niche kind of thing for those of us out there who like just weird, bizarre comedies because it's a pretty strange film uh, as far as comedies go. It's about an unemployed cartoonist, uh, Gordon, a.k.a. Tom Green, who moves back in with his parents as uh, and young brother, Freddie. When his parents demand that he leaves, he begins to spread rumors that his father is sexually abusing Freddie. His father is played by Rip Torn. Pretty funny. And the mother is the... Uh, Elaine from uh, what's uh, Airplane, directed by uh, Tom Green as well. Uh, he stars in it. Rip Torn, as I said, as the dad. Uh, Marissa Copeland is uh, Betty, who's essentially Tom Green's girlfriend. Eddie K. Thomas, who plays the uh, I guess sly, sexy nerd, I guess if you will, from American Pie. He's in this. Who plays Freddie? Harlan Williams, also as I mentioned earlier, who was in Rocket Man. He's his friend who gets his leg. Uh, <laughs> all jacked up from uh, skating on the uh, half pipe at a uh, Tom Green's house. Pretty funny. Julie Haggerty, who plays Julie Brody, is in this, who's also in uh, Airplane, the classic comedy, uh, who plays Tom Green's um, mother. So, oh, that's right. Drew Barrymore is also uh, Mr. Davidson, the uh, cartoonist, comic book, I guess, writer, if you will, uh, assistant uh, in the front, which is pretty funny. Oh, boy. Okay, what else we got here? Storyline. Uh, nah, okay, anyway. Tagline is, this time you can't change the channel. That's pretty funny. Uh, rated R for its crude sexual and bizarre humor and strong language. Yes, very much so. It's very, very bizarre. But, I mean, I like weird stuff. Anyway. Trivially, the film won five Razzies, including Worst Picture, Worst Actor, and Director. Tom Green showed up to the ceremony to pick up his award. At the time, he was the only second recipient to ever accept a Razzie in person, the first being Paul Verhoeven to pick up his seven Razzie Awards for Showgirls in 1995, uh, six years prior. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm just rattling off here. I got water next to me, but man. Anyway, the footage of surgery... Uh, Freddie is watching when the cop and the therapist come to his door is actual footage of surgery Tom Green underwent to remove a lymph node due to testicular cancer. Let me turn this down just a little bit. There we go. Okay. The French title, Va te faire futur Freddie, translates Go Fuck Yourself Freddie in English. That's pretty funny. Va te faire futur. <laughs> That's fucking funny. Uh, when Tom Green showed up to personally accept his awards at the Razzie for the film, not only did he bring his own red carpet, but he played an endless harmonica solo at the end of the show and had to actually be dragged off stage. No surprise there because Tom Green definitely goes over the top and doesn't let up. Filming was interrupted by an irate hot dog seller who refused to move his cart out of the way. He eventually moved for $2,000, a check that was later canceled. That's pretty funny. What else uh, you got here for me? Oh, boy. <clears throat> released April 20th, ha ha ha, 420, of course it was, that was probably on purpose, 2001, also known as the Tom Green movie, filmed in British Columbia, Canada, with an exact address that I'm not going to state here, it's known as The Farm, apparently, box office, $14 million, and it grossed 14.3, so it basically broke even, he made maybe a little bit off of it, but probably went to the other actors and actresses and so forth, and production companies and whatnot, so there you have it, moving on, what else we got, Wikipedia, Surreal Black Comedy. I don't think I've ever heard a film titled that before. Surreal Black Comedy. And sure, uh, I believe it. Uh, Tom Green stars in the film as a childish slacker who wishes to become a professional cartoonist while dealing with the, his abusive father's behavior. Its plot resembles Green's struggles as a young man trying to get his television series picked up, which will later become an MTV series, The Tom Green Show. I've looked into The Tom Green Show. It only had nine episodes. 
the starting year, I think, was like 1999, and then it didn't have an ending year. So I guess maybe it's still going on. I don't know. I didn't really look into it, but I never even really put two and two together. That makes perfect sense that it's literally, you know, a biopic, I guess, of his life. It makes perfect sense. Uh, what else we got here? Production-wise, the theatrical release is 87 minutes and received an R rating from the MPAA. Followed request cuts to tone it down for an NC-17, a rating that Green described as like porn with murder. <laughs> an extra on the DVD release, Green also included a version of the ending where a small child character gets sliced in the airplane airplane propeller, which had uh, to be edited to secure an R rating. That's funny. The PG-rated cut of Freddy Got Fingered is a mere three minutes long with a comedic voiceover. Some footage was leaked by Newgrounds website before release. Years later, Tom Fulp, owner of Newgrounds, confirmed that the leak was a publicity stunt. Titmouse Incorporations uh, produced the animated sequences. Look at my who's. Probably that. Just a guess. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Critical response. Uh, panned upon release, of course it was. Rotten Tomatoes, 11% uh, with 95 critics, giving it a 3.2 out of 10. Eh, yeah, I believe it. Metacritic, it has a rating out of... Uh, weighted mean out of 100 reviews from the film critics and overwhelming dislike 13 out of 100 reviews based on 25 i guess reviewers it has a c minus on the cinema score out of an a to f scale and, and like i said I, I get it it's it's not for everybody golden raspberry award nominations in 2002 and it won five <laughs> but lost to battlefield earth that's pretty funny uh, it won for Worst Screenplay, Worst Actor, Worst Director, Worst Screen Couple, Worst Picture, Worst Supporting Actor, Worst Supporting Actress, Worst Picture of the Decade. That is in uh, 2010. Wow. Stinkers, Bad Movie Awards, Worst Picture, Most Painfully Unfunny, Most Intrusive Musical Score, Worst Song, Worst Director, Worst Actor, Worst On-Screen Couple. That's hilarious because I, I thought his, fr or his girlfriend Betty was pretty funny. I don't care if you're a loser, Gordy. I just want to suck your cock. That's so funny. Like it's. I can't believe she actually... Man, it's just, she probably laughed so many times just trying to say that. I thought it was hilarious. Legacy-wise, uh, it is labeled as a cult classic among probably a bunch of weirdos, including myself. Comedian Chris Rock listed Freddy Got Fingered as one of his favorite movies on his website. That's hilarious. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> what does Adult Swim have to say? He calls, okay, excuse me, Unreality Magazine featured the film in its list of 10 hilarious movies that received terrible reviews. Noted that the critics' taste in comedies tend to not reflect the general public. Agreed. IFC, IFC, I can't even speak English, geez. IFC.com <clears throat> wrote an article in defense of the Freddy Got Fingered film, calling the film one of the greatest underrated comedies of the decade, and says the film would go on to do better if it was released today. And that's subjective in your own opinion. I think it would offend a lot of people today, comparing it to the successful Adult Swim series Aqua Teen Hunger Force. But why would you even compare it to that? It's not even remotely close. No fucking way. That was it. Whatever. I had no idea what I was about to read, and I read it to you guys, you know, off rip. Green stated that he would like to do a director's cut release of the film in 2011 to celebrate its 10th anniversary, but that's obviously 12 years ago now. So maybe he could do a 20th anniversary, which was also two years ago. But anyway, yep, so there you have it. Freddy Got Fingered. If you haven't seen it and you want to watch a weird, bizarre comedy, there it is. Go watch it. You can't watch my VHS copy because that's mine. I'm not giving it away. It's mine. <laughs> Go watch something else. Just kidding. You watch this one too. All right, next film.
got a little more uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell going on in the background. Mississippi Blues, it is an hour long. No way I'm going to be talking an hour about this film, but I want to talk to you guys about it nonetheless. Duel, a TV film directed by, yes, none other than Steven Spielberg. He did this, and then uh, Sugarland Express after that, and then obviously Jaws 1975 being the first summer blockbuster. This film was done in 1971. It is PG, an hour and 30 minutes. It has a 7.6 out of 74,000 reviews. And I don't know if that's just because it's Steven Spielberg, but I mean, it, it is a good movie in its own right. It's different. It's definitely different compared to like anything else he's ever done. That's for sure. Uh, the tagline on the cover art for it is the most bizarre murder weapon ever used. Uh, starring Dennis Weaver and written by Richard Matheson, the guy behind I Am Legend, the classic 1956, 58 book around there, I believe. Um, great, great book. I would love for uh, Richard Matheson's short stories to be adapted to like screenplay, whether it be a TV miniseries or even like a, you know, hour and a half film or something. But anyway, this film is about an action thriller. A business commuter is pursued and terrorized by a malevolent driver of a massive tractor trailer, basically like a giant uh, flammable, you know, fuel truck is basically what I picture. Oh, it's, it's definitely something. It's, it's pretty cool. Starring Dennis Weaver, who else is in this? I don't really recognize anybody else, probably because they're more or less, probably more famous for uh, TV-based stuff. Uh, moving on, I guess. Uh, yes, The Sugarland Express was his next film that he did, which has a 6.7, something else I would like to watch as well. Um, the tagline is, A duel is about to begin between a man, a truck, and the open road, where a simple battle of its wits is now a matter of life and death. Trivially, let's take a look here. According to Richard Matheson, he was inspired to write the original short story Duel after an encounter with a tailgating truck on November 22nd, 1963, the same day that JFK was assassinated. That's a trip, dude. <coughs> when Carrie Lofton, playing the truck driver, uh, which you don't know in the film, you don't know who the truck driver is at all, you sort of get to begin to guess because he pulls over at a restaurant and there's a bunch of patrons in there and he notices that the truck also pulled over too and they're all in there, you know, having a bar and eating or whatever, but you don't know who it is. Anyway. Uh, asked, uh, Carrie Lofton, uh, the truck driver asked Steven Spielberg what his motivation was for tormenting the car's driver. Spielberg told him, you're a dirty, rotten, no good son of a bitch. Lofton replied, kid, you hired the right man. That's kind of cool. Steven Spielberg said the multiple license plates on the front bumper of the truck suggest that the truck driver is a serial killer, which ran down other drivers in other States. That's, that's so cool. This is like the only movie that I can think of other than maybe like, I guess, Stephen King's Christine, where there's a, you know, a, of <laughs> a vehicle slasher i guess if you will granted there's really next to no blood i think dennis weaver like hits his head on the steering wheel or something or he hits his like lip and he begins to bleed and he wipes it off and that's really all you see not that i only watch slashers simply just for the blood but this has a good story too granted it's mostly just driving but it's still i enjoy it for what it is uh, during the chase, a parked sedan resembling a squad car is seen briefly raising Dennis Weaver's hopes, but it turns out to be a service car for a pest exterminator named Grep Greplips, Spielberg spelled backwards. That's an interesting, I never really realized that. Well, one of those things I guess you notice after the fact. Spir Spielberg praised uh, how the truck was handled in an exceptionally safe manner by 50-year-old stunt driver Carrie Lofton. Although it appears the truck driving is driving at a recklessly unsafe speed along the winding California roads, it is actually not going more than 30 miles per hour. To get the sense of increased speed, uh, Spielberg borrowed the specially made camera from the 68 Steve McQueen thriller Bullet, awesome, 1968, which could lower the camera to only six inches off the ground. Spielberg also filmed the vehicles against a background of cliffs, which 
uh, when combined with an upward angle perspective from the wheels created an optical illusion of a much faster speed of 30 miles per hour. That's a trip, dude. That's so cool. So, so cool. Moving on, what else we got here? Uh, I watched a VHS copy that I picked up, although I do have a DVD copy. I picked up a VHS copy a little while ago at a thrift store near me for a dollar. It goes on eBay for anywhere between, I've seen it like, depending on condition, anywhere between like 60 to 100 bucks. I mean, it's just a, it's a cool investment, I guess, if you will. I mean, it's such a cool thing to own, like an original piece of Steven Spielberg on VHS. Just, I'm happy to have it. <coughs> Excuse me. What else we got here? Uh, released November 13th, 1971, also known as DVOBOJ. I don't know what language that is, but filmed in Sierra Highway, Agua Dulce, California at Chuck's Cafe Truck Stop, which is pretty much actually near where I used to live growing up in uh, L.A. County. I can tell that it was a solid ag canyon back there with the uh, the uh, tunnels through the mountains. Super, super cool. Produced by Universal Television, and why wouldn't it be? Its budget was four hundred fifty thousand estimated, and it says gross worldwide only two thousand five hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, it was a TV movie, so I, I don't. Know. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say about it. Uh, centers on a business commuter by uh, played by Dennis Weaver driving his car through California, like I said, Solid Ed Canyon, Sierra Highway. However, he finds himself chased and terrorized by a semi truck. A screenplay adapted by Richard Matheson. Uh, produced by Universal Television, as I stated. The international theatrical release poster is super, super cool looking. The killer's weapon is a 400-ton truck, and the victim's only defense is a startling trap. That's a trip. So, so cool. What do we got here? Production-wise. Adapted the script uh, for a short story originally published in April of 1971's issue of Playboy magazine. Wow. Matheson got the inspiration for a story, as I stated, from the JFK assassination. In preparation for writing, he drove from his home to Ventura and recorded everything he saw on a tape recorder. That's really cool. The short story was given to Spielberg, told him that it was being made into a movie of the week for ABC with producer George Eckstein. Suggested that he uh, applied to be the director. Spielberg read the story, which he liked. Duels Spielberg, second feature-length effort after LA 2017, a 1971 episode of the NBC TV series Name of the Game. Okay, so this is where he really kind of, I guess, started uh, directing, I guess, if you will, as far as movies go compared to just TV. That's a trip. Okay. Much of the movie was filmed around communities in Canyon Country. What did I say? Where I grew up, Agua and Acton. Filmed on Sierra Highway, Solid Ed Canyon, and Los Angeles Forest Highway, which, as I stated, I, could, I just knew right away. I was like, yep, I recognize that like the back of my hand as a compromise. Spielberg started the filming on location for the first three days to see if it really could be done on an efficient level. To help with the plotting, he made an overhead map to help plot cameras out. Many of the landmarks in Duel still exist, including the tunnels, as I stated. The railroad crossing Chuck's Cafe, where man stops for a break, is also still there. The cafe building is still on Sierra Highway, but has housed a French restaurant called Les Champs since 1980, so it changed its name. The cliffs where the truck crashes at the end of the Mystery Mesa off of Vasquez Canyon Road. Vasquez Canyon houses these uh, Vasquez Canyon, uh, I guess, uh, landmarks of rocks, if you will, where they filmed the uh, Flintstone movie, along many other films where Vasquez uh, Rock was filmed, uh, which is in, like, Acton, Agua Dulce area. Spielberg lobbied for Dennis Weaver to star in his film because he admired Weaver's work on Orson Welles's Touch of Evil, solid film. Weaver repeats one of his lines from the Touch of Evil in Duel, telling the truck driver in the cafe that he has another thing coming. I didn't even realize that. That's pretty meta. Even for the time, that's so cool. Spielberg said that, you know, I watched that movie at least twice a year to remember what I did. That's so cool, man. <clears throat> 
the truck as an antagonist. Matheson's script made it clear that the truck driver would be unseen, as I stated, aside from the few shots of his arms and boots that were necessary to the plot. So you understand that it's a man. It's not just a crazy car driving like how it is in Christine. Specifically, the driver's arm is shown twice, motioning man ahead, and his snakeskin boots are in the gas station scene near the beginning of the film. His motives are never necessarily revealed. In DVD documentary about the feature, Spielberg observes that the fear of the unknown is perhaps the greatest fear of all. Agreed. The duel plays heavily to that fear. The effect of not seeing the driver makes the real antagonist of the film the truck itself. What did I just say? It's basically the same exact thing, just reiterated. I like that. Use of its sound, its music, everything for the time was just super cool. Release initially shown on American TV as an installment of the ABC Movie of the Week. It was the 18th highest rated TV movie that year with a Nielsen rating of 20.9, audience share of 33% at the time. Home video, released on VHS in 1982 under the MCA video cassette label that I have, and, and then again in 1990. I believe I have the original Universal one, so I'm happy about that. Released DVD 19th, 2004, uh, August 19th of 2004, excuse me. Uh, re-released on Blu-ray August 14th of 2014, part of the Steven Spielberg Director's Collection. And then a 4K plan release, uh, actually this year, July 11th, 2023, that's a trip. I don't need another copy. I have a DVD and VHS, that's fine. Fine with me. Rotten Tomatoes, 89% out of 45 reviews, a 7.8 out of 10, and rightly so, because it just has that like eerie thriller kind of quality to it. It's, a, it's very hard to find a decent TV film, and I really enjoyed it. Accolades. Uh, it won an Emmy for an outstanding achievement in film sound editing, 1972. Has a Golden Globe, best movie made for TV in 1972. Saturn Award, best DVD classic film re-release in uh, 2003. So, you know, it has a cult following. It has great music. It's just solid, solid film, dual all around. Steven Spielberg's first TV film. Go watch it any which way you can. Highly recommended. Next thing. I'm going to close out this episode with a, I guess, a video game, handheld console slash toy. I mean, whatever you guys want to label this thing as. Uh, I know of the Game Boy Micro, but I'm not sure if some of my listeners know of it. So I decided to look up a little bit of history, and I'm going to be talking about it. The Game Boy Micro, a handheld gaming console developed and manufactured by none other than Nintendo. First released in Japan in September 2005, uh, September 13th to be exact, as a smaller, lighter redesign of the Game Boy Advance. The system is the last Game Boy handheld alongside the AGS uh, Game Boy Advance SP, the AGS 101 model, which uh, had a backlight to it. Super, super cool. Unlike its predecessors, the Game Boy Micro lacks backwards compatibility for original Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. That's unfortunate. Historically, <clears throat> Nintendo of America Vice President George Harrison, no Beatles pun intended here, but uh, here comes the sun. Anyway, <laughs> the idea for a smaller version of the Game Boy was first discussed in 2004. Harrison explained that unlike the traditional console development, Nintendo was always thinking about new ideas, describing it as a continuous process of invention and innovation. Developed under the codename Oxy, I don't know why, sure, whatever, the Game Boy, or excuse me, the company tried many ways to see how small they can make the Game Boy, opting for a metallic casing that according to Nintendo, President Satoru Iwata was unusual for Nintendo. Announced for Nintendo of America's Vice President of Sales and Marketing, uh, some sort of French name, Reggie Fils Aime, excuse my pronunciation, at the uh, Electronic Entertainment Expo in May of 2005. The system was released September 13, 2005, 
in Japan, North America, September 19th, so just six days later, less than a week, in Australia, November 3rd, 2005, and in Europe, November 4th, 2005, released in China as the IQ Game Boy Micro. That thing probably goes for a pretty penny because the N64 IQ is... It's insane, the price on that thing on eBay. And later released in South Korea in November 9th, 2005. Uh, design and specifications. The Game Boy Micro retains most of the similar functionality to the Game Boy Advance SP, but in a more compact form factor. It has a smaller screen. Additionally, it has a backlit screen, just like the SP, with its ability to adjust its brightness. The shape itself is oblong, more or less a rectangle that can fit pretty much in your hand compared to the SP, how it's like a square. <coughs> Excuse me, much like the uh, NES controller. The Game Boy Micro cannot play original Game Boy and Game Boy Color. As I stated, it is not backwards compatible. While the 8-bit sharp uh, coprocessor and graphics hardware necessary to run games for older Game Boy systems is still present, it lacks the internal hardware for backwards compatibility. So even though it's there, you can't use it. That's so stupid. It also is incompatible with the e-reader and other peripherals due to similar design issues. Uh, the e-reader was more or less a gimmick for the Game Boy Advance. I, I have seen them. I never used it. Uh, its micro features are removal, decorative housing called a faceplate. So you can, they're interchangeable, kind of like how the faceplate was on the uh, Xbox 360 Elite. Designs with a special face. Wow, flace. Yeah, I'm going to go back to September and I'm going to pick up a flace. Sure, why not? What the fuck? Can't speak English. Designs with special faceplates were sold as a customization feature for the micro are made in mold decoration, just like how a, uh, yeah, anyway. The Game Boy Micro has a two-way switch on its right side for adjusting volume. By holding down the left shoulder button, the switch can be used to adjust the backlight between five levels of brightness. <sighs> the Game Boy Micro is compatible with GBA games and uh, GBA video game packs. So that's pretty interesting. The, uh, the following accessories are not compatible with the system though, however. Original Game Boy games, as I stated, Game Boy Color, the GBA wireless adapter, so that sucks. Uh, the GameCube Game Boy Advance cable, that sucks. The Game Boy printer, eh, it's dumb, gimmicky. Game Boy camera, also gimmicky, whatever. They did it better on the DS with that. Uh, the Game Link cables and the wireless adapter are not compatible. Adapters have been released since then and made them compatible. Although upon initial release, they weren't compatible. I feel like I'm just going in circles here, geez. Nintendo also redesigned their Play Yan music video adapter to better fit the Game Boy Micro. The device is also able to play MP3 and digital video files from SD cards. That's a trip. I don't think I knew that, so that's pretty cool. <clears throat> As with the Game Boy Advance and the GBA uh, SP systems, there are no regional lockouts, so North American games can be played on Japanese or European hardware and or vice versa. That was one thing that was really cool about Game Boy, and I loved being in Japan. I'm like, I can pick up some Japanese games that are super cheap, that are English friendly, bring them back over here and play them. Let's go. Uh, released in four different base colors upon its release in Japan, there was black, purple, and silver, and blue. Uh, I've only seen, I think, in the wild, it was like a red and silver one, if I'm not mistaken. And those things aren't cheap, man. Also available at launch was a limited edition version based on the controller, the Japanese version of the Famicom, hence the red and silver. Uh, if I read a little more, I wouldn't have had to basically just say what I said, but I did. October 2005, Square Enix announced that they'd be releasing a special face, face plate. There it is fucking again. Face plate. Jeez, and I'm spitting on my freaking device that I'm talking into. Gee, what the hell is wrong with me? Probably talking too fast, but I have a lot to say. Featuring artwork by Yoshitaka Amano to promote the release for Final Fantasy IV on the GBA, which is also known as uh, Final Fantasy II here on Super Nintendo. Same thing, same game. 
<clears throat> in November 17, 2005, they released a Pokemon version in Japan featuring a red micro with a black faceplate containing the silhouette of Pikachu. Another special edition of the micro released April 20th, 420, giggity, 2006, which bundled Mother 3 with a red micro and a themed faceplate. That's super cool. I would like to have that, but I'm sure it's just overtly expensive in price. Uh, the Game Boy Micro in uh, the U.S. and Canada launched with two regular color choices, each sold with three interchangeable faceplates, silver with black, Ammonite and Ladybug faceplates with black and silver, flame, and camouflage faceplates. The 20th anniversary edition released December 4, 2005, was the Famicom controller-inspired version in Japan. There are no plans to sell additional faceplates in the U.S. retail locations as of now. I'm not surprised because it's... An old, it's an older piece of hardware. Nintendo of Europe cannot supply faceplates of any kind. The feature is omitted from the product's marketing, packaging, and manual in Europe. Not surprised. Oh, boy. What else we got here? Reception. Lastly, the Game Boy's micro-backlit screen, which is superior to the AGS front-lit uh, SP model, added a similar high-quality screen to SP systems, but has been praised for its visibility, much being much brighter and easier to uh convey the game compared to sp although that's what i have is sp i have a blue one with a carbon fiber a sticker around it and i love it i've had it through three different deployments and played multiple games on it due to a finer dot pitch the micro the screen is much more evenly lit and the brightness is adjustable compared to just one button on the uh, ags 101 sp Closing segment on uh, Game Boy Micro. Sorry, I got uh, interrupted. The Game Boy Micro backlit screen, superior to the original AGS, Game Boy Advance SP added a similar high-quality screen to SP systems. Has been praised for its visibility compared to the GBA SP, which was literally just an on-and-off button. Compared to here, it's, it's you can toggle the brightness. It's adjustable, much more evenly lit. Smaller dot pitch has also improved the apparent sharpness of its display, making it a much better screen to visually see. Granted, the screen itself is smaller compared to the SP, so take your pick. I like my SP. The removable faceplates have also been praised because they allow for personalization and customization and protect the high-resolution backlit screen. So there you have it. Uh, I talked one, two, three, four, five. I talked, what, five films and the Game Boy uh, Micro. I figured, you know, give it a little bit of justice. Nobody really talks about the Game Boy Micro all that much other than the fact that it is expensive, and I'm looking at it right now. eBay, $280, the Black Edition. DK Oldies, fuck them. They destroy your uh, things. They say they're refurbished, and they're not. And they're asking basically $100 more. Or another one on uh, eBay. Uh, the silver one, 215 or the Game Boy Micro that looks like the Famicom controller. I would love that one. goes for almost $600. That's insane. But there you have it. There's the Game Boy Micro and five movies that I talked about. As always, thank you for the love and support. Episode 77, let's go. Enjoy the rest of your day.